Thank you. Good afternoon. And to today's hearing on the Subcommittee on Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues will come to order. And I thank all of you for being here today. The title of this hearing is Zika in the Western Hemisphere, Risks and Responses. We will have three witnesses. Ms. Judith Garber, the Acting Assistant Secretary, Bureau of Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. Dr. Tom Frieden, the Director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Ms. Irene Koch, the Acting Deputy Assistant Administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development. We thank you all for being here today. We apologize for starting late. We, the Senate gods decided to schedule a uh, vote right at the time when we were supposed to begin. But we appreciate your time and your dedication, and I'd also like to thank all of those who worked alongside my staff to make this hearing possible. Today we face an issue that's already affecting many countries in our hemisphere, including our own. It's not partisan in nature. The growing threat of the Zika virus as a full-blown public health crisis in the United States is a clear call to action. Just look at the statistics. As of July, 65 countries and territories have reported evidence of vector-borne Zika virus transmission. What's even more troubling is the fact that four countries are classified as having possible endemic transmission or have reported evidence of local vector-borne Zika infections in 2016. As much as Zika remains a threat on the international stage, it also poses a real and timely threat to our country. That means in these countries, the disease that has already spread rapidly and made its way into the population. We're seeing this as well in the island of Puerto Rico. And Puerto Ricans, as you all are well aware, are American citizens, and Puerto Rico is an American territory. According to the statistics from the World Health Organization, the United States is one of 11 countries with evidence of person-to-person -person transmission of the Zika virus. That means that our neighbors, our friends, our families are already at risk, even without mosquito-borne transmission, though that is likely coming as well. As the threat of the virus continues to grow here, I will continue to state the importance of moving quickly in response. I strongly believe that inaction on Zika is simply inexcusable, and I am optimistic that after reviewing the facts and the hearing from the experts here today, it will reinforce this fact and the fact that something needs to happen quickly. It's taken far too long already. The effects of the Zika virus are alarming, to say the least. Pregnant women or women who have become pregnant have contracted the virus and are at risk of having babies with microcephaly. For those not familiar with microcephaly, it is a birth defect that causes severe neurological abnormalities, which can include small deformed head. This has a permanent and severely detrimental impact on the development of the baby's neurological system and quality of life. Those born with microcephaly may experience seizures, intellectual disabilities, hearing and vision loss, as well as a number of other horrific symptoms. It is our responsibility to the American people to take action when public health is in jeopardy. Although the mainland of the United States may not be worried about Zika right now, there are already 1,133 cases, and they are found in 45 out of 50 states. Just last week, the CDC reported that there are currently monitoring in the United States 320 cases of Zika in pregnant women. The CDC director who joins us here today called Zika a silent epidemic. As of now, many predicted what would happen in the summer. The spread of the virus is now accelerating. The Friday before last, federal health officials confirmed the largest number of new Zika infections in a single day in the state of Florida with 10 new cases. That was a short-lived record. It was broken last Wednesday when Florida confirmed 11 new Zika infections. That time in six counties, including Lake County, Florida, which had never had a case before. That record was broken again on Monday of this week when 13 new infections were reported. And so you get the idea. The problem is, not, is only going to continue to accelerate. 
This is not the first time I have spoken on the growing threat of Zika. In late January of this year, as I was somewhere outside of Florida, I saw a headline in the New York Times that stopped me in my tracks. It said, report of Zika-linked birth defects rise in Brazil. The article went on to say the health authorities in Brazil said Wednesday that reported cases of microcephaly, a rare condition in which infants are born with abnormally small heads, had climbed to 4,180 cases since October, a 7% increase from the previous tally last week. And it stopped me in my tracks for a number of reasons. First was the staggering number and the breakneck speed with which the disease was spreading over just the course of a week. But it also made me pause because, for those of us who live in South Florida and travel through Miami International Airport, we know very well what happens in we know very well that what happens in Brazil impacts us in the United States, especially in Florida. A couple of days after that, I reached out to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection to express my concerns and ask what they were doing or could do about this, given Miami International Airport standing as the gateway to the Americas with more flights and passengers going to and from Brazil than any other U.S. airport. Here on the Senate floor and back home in my state, I have called for action from my colleagues. I urge support for fully funding the President's funding request to deal with this virus. I've supported every single Zika proposal that has come before the Senate, every single one, but nothing has gotten done. The problem's only getting worse. It is our duty to act now, while we can still get ahead of this disease and before it is simply too late. I believe the Congress has a constitutional responsibility and a moral obligation to confront the Zika virus. It is my hope that today's hearing will further call attention to the seriousness of this situation and what more we can do in the Western Hemisphere to help fight it. This challenge we face is emblematic of how interconnected we are as a country with our neighbors. In this global economy, public health crises do not respect international borders. The negative impacts of these problems, from the economy to political instability, can easily impact us here at home. The links between our country, especially Florida, and other nations of the Western Hemisphere are obvious. I've already covered Brazil, but for example, the first baby born in Florida with Zika-related microcephaly was a mother who came from Haiti. Last month, Time reported that 12,000 pregnant Colombian women have Zika. The Zika virus is already a U.S. public health emergency. The problem's even worse in Latin America. It's only growing by the day. And the links between our nations make this a hemispheric public health crisis where, once again, American ingenuity and innovation in the medical sciences must lead the way if we are to help save lives, including countless unborn children. We must begin to meet the Zika virus with a sense of urgency that we have not seen up to now. Listen to the experts from around. It's time to act. It's time to enact serious solutions. I am proud to stand as an advocate for any legislation that would provide funding to combat Zika as soon as possible. And we cannot rest until we've taken action in order to ensure the safety and health of the American public. Thank you. With that, I recognize our ranking member, Senator Boxer. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman, for this hearing. Uh, thank you to our witnesses, our guests. Few issues pose as immediate a threat to the health of Americans as the Zika virus. The virus has caused severe birth defects in thousands of newborns. These birth defects include brain damage, blindness. They're devastating to mothers, to families, to communities. In some cases, we've seen the premature death of children. The Zika virus has caused a rare disorder in adults in which the body attacks its own nervous system, causing paralysis. The Zika virus is also linked with another autoimmune disorder that resembles multiple sclerosis which causes swelling in the brain and the spinal cord. We only have to listen to public health experts to get a clear sense 
of the virus's danger. The World Health Organization has said that the Zika virus is, quote, spreading explosively, unquote, in the Americas and threatens to overwhelm almost every country in the Western Hemisphere. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention has said the virus is, quote, scarier than we originally thought, unquote. The Zika virus is already here in the continental United States. Over 1,000 people have already contracted the virus through travel or sexual conduct. And as the disease travels northward from Latin America and the Caribbean, up to 30 states are in danger of local outbreaks from mosquitoes carrying the virus. 30 states. This includes California and the chairman's home state of Florida. In short, we need to act now. It's a real threat and it's dangerous. Now here's the great news. The great news is the Senate had bipartisan legislation, which is what you have when you have an outbreak like this. It was proposed by Senators Blunt and Murray. It provided the administration with less than they wanted, but nonetheless, $1.1 billion. It, when the president requested $1.9, the two senators negotiated, and the best they could come up with was $1.1, but the compromise would have gone a long way without having poison pills and ridiculous riders that are dangerous to the American people included in the legislation. What happened to that bill? That wonderful bill that my chairman voted for, that I voted for, that we all voted for. It disappeared down the black hole of partisanship. The Republicans in the House had a conference and they did not allow any Democrats into that conference. Not Senator Mikulski, a woman who we revere around here on both sides. Not Senator Murray, who's worked across the aisle on so many issues. No. They left them out. And you know what they came out with? A bill that actually restricts funding for birth control in the United States and in Puerto Rico even though they know, they know that Zika can be transmitted sexually and birth control should not be controversial and it's part of the first line of defense. There's no room for politics in this. Listen, the report also overrides the Clean Water Act and I know about this because I'm the ranking member on the Environment and Public Works Committee, was chairman of that committee, a landmark law that was passed by Republicans and Democrats. It overrides it. It allows the uncontrolled pesticide spraying near water supplies that we drink out of and our children swim in. Pesticides that could poison our people. Now you may say this is an emergency. Shouldn't we be able to spray? The answer is under the Clean Water Act, you can. You don't even need to get a permit. The Clean Water Act understands this. It's a brilliant piece of legislation. And it says in an emergency, you don't need to get a permit. Go ahead and spray. Spray the amounts necessary off the approved list and just notify the EPA. Just notify the EPA. But you don't have to get a permit. Oh, that wasn't good enough for my friends over there. They completely take away that whole section of the Clean Water Act. And that means that there's no more right to know, 
if somebody goes next to your house and sprays some horrible pesticide that causes cancer that's not on the approved list, you have no way of knowing that has happened. And the Clean Water Act is smart. Once the emergency is over, they sit down with the local agency and they figure out a way to maintain it. So here we have a circumstance where the House Republicans, without any consultation with anybody, completely eviscerate the Clean Water Act. So you may not get the Zika, but your kid could get cancer from swimming in uh, water that's laden with a pesticide that's very harmful. Where is that sensible? You can't just say, I'm speaking for myself, I can't say I'm going to vote for any bill, because what if the bill does as much harm as it does good? We're legislators. We have to be careful what we do, what we vote for. So they took out the possibility for nonprofits to do birth control, which is the first line of defense against the Zika. They completely eviscerated the Clean Water Act, which makes it dangerous for our people. They even put something in there about the Confederate flag, which my colleague, Senator Cain, understands was explaining to me. He can do a better job of explaining it. But essentially, it overrode another bill where we said you can't fly the flag at veteran cemeteries. They did away with it in the Zika bill. So it's discouraging. And I call on all of us who voted for that bipartisan bill, and it's all of us here, as far as I know, bring back that bill. Keep out the bad stuff. Let's get it done. It's bad enough they cut funding for Ebola. That thing could rise up again. That's horrible. But these things are added, if you will, insults to the note to the American people, thinking that we're doing something good when we're doing some bad things as well. I just wanted to say quickly in closing, I am so disgusted with the situation as we all are, every one of us, Republican, we don't know how we got here, we just got here. So I'm hoping we can do something different in the future, Mr. Chairman, and I've written legislation. It would create a $3 billion emergency public health fund, kind of like FEMA, kind of like FEMA, where it would be within the Department of HHS and allow the CDC and HHS to use those funds to address global health threats. And it would allow them to go in, they would notify Congress, we could overrule them if we didn't like it. But we wouldn't put politics in the middle of this thing. I am, you could see, a little worked up. And I apologize, maybe I'm a little too worked up. But I share my friend, the chairman's view on this Zika thing. We are sitting on this. And we have to get off sitting on it and do something about it. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Boxer, we'll begin with our testimony by Ms. Garber, the Secretary Garber. Thank you, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Boxer, and distinguished members of the subcommittee. We really appreciate the opportunity to testify today in the State Department's response to the Zika virus outbreak. I have a longer statement that I would like to submit with your permission. With regard to the current situation, 40 countries and territories in the Western Hemisphere are experiencing active mosquito-borne transmission of the Zika virus. Several countries and territories in Africa and Asia are also experiencing outbreaks for the first time. Since this ep epidemic began, science and medical experts, my colleague Dr. Frieden, foremost amongst them, 
have discovered the truly heart-wrenching impacts that this virus can have on its victims, and particularly on developing fetuses. As you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, this is a silent outbreak. We do not see hospitals full of ill patients or hear ambulance sirens in the street. Across the hemisphere, pregnant women and their partners are living in fear, fear that their child may be born with severe developmental defects. In addition to the tremendous emotional and health toll of this epidemic on families and communities, the demographic and economic consequences are still emerging. The cost of lifetime support for children affected by Zika, as well as adults experiencing Guillain-Barre syndrome or other neurological effects, could significantly tax national health and education systems. Areas with high poverty levels and dense population are most vulnerable to Zika, but least able to manage the consequences. The US government is committed to helping prevent, detect, and respond to the Zika virus, both at home and abroad. Countries around the world look to the United States as a leader in global health security, and we are working with countries in the Americas and beyond to provide tailored support. Many countries in the region have governments and strong public health systems capable of mounting a response to Zika. Countries such as Brazil, Panama, and Colombia host respected research institutions with which we are partnering to learn more about the virus and develop countermeasures. Through regional institutions such as the Pan American Health Organization and the Organization of American States, the US government and our neighbors are leveraging our collective expertise to share best practices and identify innovative tools for vector control and disease diagnosis. In countries such as Haiti, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and the Dominican Republic, the United States is providing more direct assistance to effectively respond to the Zika virus threat. Our embassies are working closely with these governments and international organizations, such as the World Health Organization, to identify capacity gaps and prioritize assistance. U.S. voluntary contributions and other support to our regional and multilateral partners enable us to leverage U.S. funding and amplify the impact of our efforts. In addition, public-private sector partners can help respond where in areas where the U.S. government has limited access or resources. And today at the State Department, we hosted an excellent public-private partnership event on just this topic. The State Department is committed to protecting the safety and security of all U.S. citizens. This also means working with other governments to attack the Zika virus outbreak at its source. By cooperating with other countries on Zika public health emergency response and planning, we help build a stronger global response to protect U.S. citizens and the international community while contributing to international stability. If we can control an infectious outbreak quickly, either at home or abroad, we help limit its impact on US citizens. So we are working with other governments to increase surveillance and diagnostic capacity, to scale up vector control and to cut off the transmission cycle. We are pushing out across multiple platforms the information needed for our citizens and nationals to make informed travel decisions and to help to protect them from contracting Zika all overseas on the basis of CDC guidance. This is particularly true in the case of the Olympics in Brazil, where we expect over 100,000 U.S. citizens to attend. And Brazil is working very hard to protect the health and safety of all athletes and spectators attending the Olympics and Paralympics, including through its own public awareness campaigns and vector control efforts. Zika, like Ebola before it, has highlighted how interconnected we are as a global community. We have a window of opportunity to address the urgent needs now before we put it further, we put it further risk by working with our international partners and reaffirming leadership in the region. As Secretary Kerry said at the Global Health Security Agenda Summit in 2014, in an interconnected world, we invest in global health, 
not simply as a matter of charity or as a matter of moral responsibility, but we do it as a matter of national security. Thank you for your consideration, and I welcome the opportunity to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. Dr. Frieden. Thank you very much, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Boxer, members of the committee. With your permission, I'll submit the written statement for the record. Uh, CDC works 24-7 to protect Americans from threats. We use the best of modern science. Zika is both unprecedented and tragic. Never before have we known of a situation when a single mosquito bite could result in a devastating birth defect. The top priority in the response to Zika is to protect pregnant women. We're literally learning more about Zika every day, and in the six months of our response, we've learned and done a number of things to protect Americans better. Uh, we wish we had a more uh, rapid and robust uh, support for funding to do even more. I'll go through those 10 things very quickly. First, the Zika response is extraordinarily complex. We have almost every center at CDC involved, more than 1,000 of our top scientists. This involves our birth defect center, our vector control work, our uh, laboratory work, obstetrical work, information on sexual transmission, uh, mosquito control, virology, uh, laboratory production, to identify the best methods in each community to protect pregnant women. Second, it is now definitive that Zika causes both microcephaly and other severe birth defects, and that it does so whether or not the infected pregnant women, woman had symptoms of Zika during the infection. This led us to rapidly issue travel guidance, literally within days of first seeing the Zika virus in the brains of infants uh, who had died from the Zika infection, and to provide guidance and education to providers and women of childbearing age and their partners. With additional resources, we would be able to better understand the mechanisms of that harm and the full range of harms. We don't know what happens to infants born with normal-sized heads to mothers who were infected with the Zika virus. And we may not know that for months or years, but we need to begin those studies now. Third, uh, as mentioned, Asymptomatic illness in pregnancy can cause in a birth defects, and that's why we have very detailed guidance for what doctors should do for testing of pregnant women who may have been exposed. Fourth, Zika almost certainly causes the Guillain-Barre syndrome. We'll know more soon. A variety of infections cause Guillain-Barre syndrome. It would not be a surprise for Zika to be associated with that. The really new and different thing about Zika is the connection to birth defects. As a result, with other parts of the Department of Health and Human Services, we're planning for an increase in the number of cases in Puerto Rico and possibly elsewhere. Fifth, uh, we've recognized that diagnosing Zika is hard, but we've made lots of progress. CDC laboratory experts have created the tests that are being used in more than 100 laboratories around the United States and nearly 100 countries around the world. We've produced nearly one million test kit materials for testing. Uh, and we've identified more about how to do that more accurately. However, testing for Zika is difficult. Viral loads tend to be low in serum, and we've learned that more is needed to do a better job testing. There is currently no test that can determine whether someone had Zika infection months or years before. We need to accelerate work on that basic question. Uh, fifth, uh, sorry, sixth, uh, vector control is even harder. The mosquito that causes Zika is difficult to stop. Um, we see that uh, in Puerto Rico, the mosquitoes are resistant to just about all of the most common insecticides used. It's critically important that we strengthen mosquito 
monitoring and control in the U.S., in the territories, and learn more about how to do a better job stopping mosquitoes from spreading. This is something which additional resources would be very helpful in. Seventh, there are other routes of transmission. It's also the first time we've identified a mosquito-borne disease that can also be sexually transmitted. Uh, and that has implications for the sexual partners of uh, women who are pregnant. So we've had additional guidance there. It's also clear that it can potentially be spread through blood. So we've worked carefully with the FDA, with uh, the blood banks of the U.S. to ensure that the blood supply is safe in this country. Eighth, Puerto Rico is being singled out by the mosquito. Today in Puerto Rico, dozens and potentially as many as 50 additional pregnant women will become infected with the Zika virus. Puerto Rico has been dealt a difficult hand because of its environment, and it's critical that we do everything we can to protect pregnant women there now. Ninth, globalization and urbanization are driving the spread of Zika, as well as cholera, yellow fever, and other diseases. It's the latest in a series of unpredicted and unpredictable health threats. What is predictable is that we will have new health threats, and we need a way to respond rapidly and robustly to identify problems where they first emerge and stop them when they first come out. And tenth, we've seen a remarkable capacity within CDC for innovation, new laboratory tests, new mosquito control methods. Every day we're discovering new ways, better ways, to protect, detect, and respond to Zika. We're committed to ensuring that the American people have the most accurate, up-to-date information, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Dr. Frieden. Ms. Koch. Thank you, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Boxer, and distinguished members of the subcommittee for inviting me here today to testify on USAID's response to the Zika virus outbreak. I want to thank you for your continued leadership and commitment to this issue. I will submit a written statement for the record, but today I would like to briefly describe USAID's work with the U.S. government and regional and international partners to address Zika. Our aim is to minimize the negative pregnancy outcomes associated with Zika infection. Our efforts are focused on countries at risk for adverse outcomes from Zika that have relatively weaker government capacity to respond to Zika and where we expect that governments will want support from the United States. Our top tier priorities include Haiti, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, and the Dominican Republic. Our strategy has four interconnected lines of effort, vector control, social and behavior change, service delivery related to maternal and child care and family planning, and innovation. In vector control, our activities aim to improve and expand existing vector management efforts in Zika-affected or at-risk countries to reduce the Aedes mosquito populations. We'll implement household and community-level vector control, helping those at risk learn to eliminate sources of standing water in which the Aedes mosquitoes breed, scrub containers for mosquito eggs, and apply larvicide to water sources that cannot easily be eliminated. For social and behavior change and community engagement approaches, put the community at the forefront of managing their risks at prevention and management of the disease and are of critical importance. We'll give people the tools and knowledge to adopt personal protective behaviors, including the use of repellents, long sleeve clothing and condoms, seek care and help with community response. Our service delivery approach begins before a woman becomes pregnant by ensuring that women in Zika-affected areas who may wish to delay or limit future pregnancies can access family planning information and services. For women who are currently pregnant, providers must be trained to counsel them and their partners on the need to prevent sexual transmission of Zika through condom use. 
Once a woman becomes pregnant or has a baby in a Zika-affected area, USAID is committed to ensuring that she receives cost-effective, high-quality maternal and child health services with an emphasis on respectful care of pregnant women and infants with suspected congenital Zika syndrome. Innovations are critically needed to mitigate the spread and impact of Zika virus and improve our ability to prevent, detect, and respond to future infectious disease outbreaks. While we are utilizing all the tools in our toolbox to mitigate the impact and spread of Zika virus, many of those tools have limitations. As such, USAID worked quickly to launch a new grand challenge called Combating Zika and Future Threats. We received over 1,000 responses and believe we have some very exciting options. We expect to begin making awards by the end of this month or in early August. So far in our programming efforts, we have completed a new interagency agreement with CDC and transferred $78 million to enable them to start on critical surveillance and research activities. And we've obligated $18 million to partners to work primarily in service delivery and behavior change areas. We are also working with UNICEF and PAHO in the region and with the World Health Organization in Geneva to address growing needs on a global level and outside of the Western Hemisphere. By the end of this month, we expect to begin our vector control activities, and in September, in August and September, our community engagement activities will be rolled out. We've designed our efforts to ensure they solidify the legacy of USAID's 50-year history of health assistance gains in the region. USAID is committed to addressing the Zika virus outbreak of today and strengthening capacities to ensure that this threat will be mitigated as much as possible. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you all for, for being here. I want to begin with Secretary Garber. The, Brazil's new health minister has said that there is a almost zero risk of athletes or spectators contracting Zika during the Olympics. Is the threat, is the threat in, in Brazil truly almost zero? And what advice do you feel, let me ask this, should our athletes or spectators feel fully safe in traveling to Brazil for the Olympics, given what we know about the situation there? Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, we are putting out the guidance based on the CDC guidance and pushing that out through all available platforms to make sure that, that travelers and the over 100,000 Americans that are planning on attending the Olympics can make informed decisions. We know that the government of Brazil is working very hard to address this outbreak through its own very aggressive public information campaigns and vector control efforts, including through, through um, many in the Army, hundreds of thousands, as well as public health officials to work on vector control. But I would defer to, to Dr. Frieden specifically on, on the assessment of the risk. But Dr. Frieden, is the chance of contracting Zika in Brazil almost zero for athletes and spectators? We recommend for any travel that pregnant women not go to areas where Zika may be spreading. So we would recommend for the Olympics, as we would for any other travel, that pregnant women not travel. For others, there are reasonable steps people can take to protect themselves. Historical data does suggest that uh, viruses spread by this mosquito are less common uh, in the period of the Olympics, but we think the key issue is not why people travel, but who is traveling, and the key message to get out there is that pregnant women shouldn't be traveling to areas where Zika is spreading, and if they're present in those areas, should take steps to protect themselves. Well, let me ask it another way. Should athletes or spectators traveling to Brazil at least think about it before they go, given what we've known about how rapidly it has spread there? 
All travel involves risk. It may be from a motor vehicle crash, it may be from infectious diarrhea, it may be from dengue or other diseases. We don't think the risk uh, will outweigh the travel uh, benefits for most people except for the group of pregnant women. And that's why immediately after identifying uh, Zika in the brains of affected infants, we advise that pregnant women not travel to Zika-affected areas. Also important for men who have sexual partners who are pregnant to use condoms if they come back from an area with Zika. Dr. Frieden, what is a reasonable timetable to expect a uh, vaccine for Zika? We're told by the National Institutes of Health that they hope to be in clinical trials uh, in September. That would mean that in the next couple of years we could have an approved vaccine that is both safe and effective but only time will tell uh, whether that happens. It is very promising. The immune response to Zika is robust, so it's certainly theoretically quite possible, but these things do take time. You touched upon it in your statement earlier, and um, a lot of the focus on Zika, and rightfully so, has been through the impact that it has on microcephaly. But let me ask you, I know that there's a study ongoing with the Colombian government to study the link between Zika and Guillain-Barre. Is there anything you can share with us about the preliminary findings? I, I saw in your statement you said that you most certainly believe that it will prove that there is a direct link. We've seen several studies published, one from French Polynesia. We have work going from Brazil. We expect by the end of the summer to finalize that work. Uh, I expect that that link will be proven given the epidemiological patterns, but we don't yet have two really strong independent studies determining it. That takes some time. But we've had excellent collaboration, both in Brazil and especially in Colombia, where we're really working side by side with long-term collaborators there. And again, just to be clear, just so anyone who might be watching this now or later would understand, the, the Guillain-Barre uh, link is on everyone. Anyone infected by Zika runs that risk beyond what we're talking about now with pregnancy, correct? That's correct. It tends to increase with age, but anyone can be affected and it can cause paralysis that can be severe, is usually temporary, can last from weeks to months. And Ms. Koch, you, generally speaking, the health systems in Latin America and the Caribbean are stronger than those of many sub-Saharan African nations and Southeast Asian nations. And this phenomenon has prompted USAID to graduate several countries from many global health programs. But there are some groups that have come to us that are concerned that Haiti and countries in the Caribbean and in the Northern Triangle of Central America may be ill-equipped to ha handle Zika cases as well as possible related complications. What direct support, if any, are you planning to provide these countries? Thank you very much for that question, Senator. We do very much, uh, as USAID has a long history of supporting countries in the region, and as you noted, we did graduate our assistance from many countries, and that was a, a following a very deliberate effort and working very closely with the governments and local partners to, to move away. And as you noted, it was partly because of the progress that had been made in many of those countries and the capacity had been developed. Haiti is still a country. We have a robust uh, health program in all areas, and so we believe Haiti needs additional support, but as part of our program, they've already been able to move some of the resources they have through the USAID program to, to get a little bit ahead and start to respond to Zika. Similarly, one, one of the things we are doing, particularly in Central America, which is a number of our priority areas, is identifying where the, some of those gaps are. Zika was completely unexpected, and it does present a threat that's been discussed here today. So figuring out where can we can 
fill those gaps and provide support needed. Well, are there any countries that, we, that have graduated from the USAID health programs or have been graduated in their, in their levels that have nonetheless appeared to need additional support as a result of Zika? Yes, some of the countries that we've prioritized, including uh, Honduras and El Salvador and, um, and the Dominican Republic, are all countries that we have graduated assistance from or the robust assistance. So what we are, those are countries we believe do need some additional targeted support. Senator Boxer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Earlier this year, El Salvador issued a nationwide call for women to avoid pregnancy for two full years. Now, one can debate how real that could be, uh, given what we know. But setting that aside, other governments in Latin America also called on women, not on men, on women to avoid pregnancy. In other words, they didn't tell the men that they should work with the women. Very typical. Uh, other governments in Latin America and the Caribbean issued similar directors, directives, including Colombia, Ecuador, and Jamaica. So those countries said, women do not get pregnant for two years. My question to any of you on the panel who's most expert on this is, do you believe these countries have the health infrastructure to give women in these countries who have been told not to get pregnant for two years access to free contraception? Thank you very much, Senator Boxer. It's an excellent question and one we very much share the concerns you, you raised in, in asking this question. We're, we're very committed to ensuring that women do have access to all the information and support and access to services. And there certainly are gaps. And I think part of our, very much part of That's our That's not my question. Yeah. I the, asked you, forget us, do those countries who have told their women not to get pregnant for two years have the infrastructure to get free contraception to these women of childbearing age? Forget us. I'm asking you. Yes. They're the ones who are in charge of their own countries. They're the ones who issued this directive to their women. Do they have the infrastructure? I think it's a mix. Part of our graduation strategies in many of these countries was to make sure there was a strong family planning program in place, including supply of Do all these countries of have the ability to get free birth control to women of childbearing age? Do they have the ability to do that? I think in most cases they are. Uh, they have. They have. But the issue of making sure that you're not telling women that you must use family planning or as you put putting the onus on the women is certainly part of what I'm we not want to make sure happens. I'm asking you if they have the infrastructure and the ability to get contraception to the women that they have told that they shouldn't get pregnant for two years. Or do they, they need our help getting that we birth control to them? We believe the issues are mostly around supply or the delivery, and that's where they do need some help. They don't need help on supply on buying the contraceptives themselves. So but they making have the sure they have, they have the contraceptives. It's the delivering and making sure that the access to all the those who are most in need and the most marginalized okay. have it. And How that's are where they the gaps doing are. it? The ones that you say are doing a good job. How are they getting this contraception? 
If I could just provide two examples, Senator Boxer, and then I'll, I'll defer back to Irene for anything additional. I, I am aware that in Ecuador, for example, the government through its public hospital system does provide universal access to birth control. So it, it, there is a delivery system in place to allow for that. And I was just in El Salvador last week and did meet with the minister of health there and talked a little bit with Irene's uh, colleagues from USAID about how they want to prioritize the assistance that we're going to be giving them. And one of the things that the Minister of Health really emphasized tremendously was trying to be able to get out access to um, So what is the control. assistance we're going to give those countries who have told their women not to get pregnant for two years? What are we doing to provide them with free birth control? We're doing a couple of things. One is to make sure that the, the, the supplies that are in place are actually getting to the people that need them and that there is full access and that information is available to the women so they can make the choices themselves. There is some policy work also to make sure the, the statements that you described are it's not necessarily going to help give access and that's one of the concerns we have. Okay. So how many cases are there in El Salvador? We would have to get back to you with the exact would number. Would you do that? We know a, it's only a small number of the total cases that have been diagnosed. Good. And what about um, Colombia, Ecuador, and Jamaica? Do you have those stats? Uh, offhand, no, but the reported numbers are in all countries, or in most countries, only a small fraction of the total cases, since 80% of people have no symptoms at all, and testing uh, is not widely available in many of these countries. Well, how many babies have been born with anomalies in those countries? Do you have that data? In Brazil, where the epidemic started, you've had the largest number of pregnant women with infections in the first trimester, which appears to be the highest risk period come to, uh, come to term. And we've seen between hundreds and thousands of babies with microcephaly. Those are still under investigation in terms of confirmation of the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. We have an investigation collaboratively with Colombia <coughs> where we're following a group or cohort of women who appear to have had Zika infection and over the coming months will be able to determine with more certainty what the uh, prognosis could you, is. Could you get back to me on the numbers of those countries where the countries have stated they've given this directive to the women and girls not to get pregnant for two years, those countries I mentioned, how many cases of anomalies they've had. Um, and um, I, I was telling the chairman that I heard a report on one of the radio news shows that, and I just don't know if this is anything you're involved in or we're involved in, that for the young men and women who are going to Brazil, that they're going to be tracked afterward and followed to see what happens with their health. Could you, do you know anything about that? Uh, we have a memorandum of understanding with the U.S. Olympics Committee. We work collaboratively providing technical assistance, outreach, and education. Uh, they are also working with a university in the U.S. to do a study uh, voluntarily for athletes and members of the Olympics and Paralympics who want to know both before and after whether they might have been infected. That might have been what that was referring to. Okay. Well, let me just say, if we know this is dangerous, so dangerous that we're asking these people to volunteer, we better talk to these people one by one by one by one by one by one and let them know how serious this is. I feel very strongly about that. 
I don't want our people being used as guinea pigs. Oh, you come home, we'll follow you, we're gonna see whether you got this or not, and how, if you had any babies who have microcephaly. This is not right. So I would just close my, my um, frustrating comments here today by saying that um, we can't have one hand tied behind our back by saying, as the House said, in a completely partisan way, none of this money could be used for non-governmental entities to help provide birth control, which is so critical. And it is wrong. A country think they solve the problem when they just tell the women in the country they shouldn't become pregnant. There's something wrong about that on so many levels. And I hope we will let them know. And lastly, for our young people who are going to go to Brazil, where there are all these problems, and I understand that they're spraying, they're doing everything, and I'm very glad about that. There's a whole other issue of whether it's even morally responsible to have the Olympics. That's, you know, uh, that's not our job to discuss, but it's happening. And we're now going to track our people voluntarily to see whether they get this disease and what happens. There's something amiss. And I would just encourage us to, to reach out to these athletes very clearly. If the risk is so great that you're going to spend money following them, maybe they ought to know it. Just before I turn it over to Senator Isaacson, I wanted to, are we providing our Olympic athletes a basic kit of repellent and uh, uh, whatever they need to take with them in order to prevent you know, the, the contraceptives, whatever it is, what are we providing them? Are we working with the Olympic Committee to do so? Yes, we're working with the Olympics Committee to provide both information and materials for the athletes for each of the different sports that are participating, each of the different associations. Okay. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Senator Rubio, and thanks to you and Senator Boxer for calling this very important hearing. And I want to issue an invitation to the four members that are here. In recent weeks, I've had the chance with Dr. Frieden's courtesy to host two members of the United States Senate at CDC in Atlanta. I'd urge you to come down and spend an afternoon, and I'll spend it with you, to see the research that's done and the reach that CDC has, particularly with regard to Zika. And I want to underline, CDC is always referred to as the Center for Disease Control, but it's a five-word title, not a three-word title. It's Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And we're at a critical point on Zika where the prevention needs to be what we focus on because controlling it doesn't do you any good once these cases start multiplying. And I'll give you some numbers for us to be aware of. The urgency of this matter is this, that as of July the 6th, there are 1,133 Zika cases in the continental United States of America and 320 are pregnant women as of June the 30th. Is that about correct, Dr. Frieden? In the U.S. territories, there are 2,534 cases and 279 are pregnant women. This is a crisis of major proportion and we, time is of the essence. I've made two or three speeches on the floor talking about the need for us to pass this and it will be professional malpractice on our part if we leave here for seven weeks and have not dealt with this because Dr. Frieden and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention need the funds now to prevent what could be a major worldwide crisis in terms of the Zika pregnancy. As a Georgian, just as an anecdotal piece of evidence, one, an employee of mine attended the briefing with Senator Collins that Dr. Frieden took us through on Zika a few months ago. His wife was in an early pregnancy. After the briefing, he moved his wife to Colorado where these mosquitoes don't exist just to be sure she's in a safer environment than Georgia during the term of her pregnancy. In our state, the two mosquitoes that carry the Zika, both are indigenous to Georgia. So we, this is something that is priority one as far as I'm concerned. And I think it's critical that we get it done. Now, I walked, my dear friend, Senator Boxer, whose passion I have seen illustrated 
on thousands of issues as we work together as co-chairs of the Ethics Committee. But when you came in, you mentioned the Confederate flag. I want you to know that as chairman of the Veterans Committee, I saw to it that the Senate took out the House provisions, and there is nothing in the conference report at all that deals with the Confederate flag. Correct, Tim? I see Tim nodding his head, so I just want well, I can, I can tell you I had the jurisdiction. I took care of that. Well, as chairman, I'm telling you, if it's in there, somebody went over my head because I'm the one that made sure that Senate provision prevailed, which was no, no provision at all. Well, that, this is, I'm talking about the Zika bill we're talking about today. It is not in there. And I appreciate it. But I want to underline the fact that this is about prevention, and we can have our differences on a lot of things, but we've got to do everything we can to get the resources in the hands of the CDC to develop a program of prevention. They demonstrated in the Ebola, the thing about Ebola that they get so much credit for and should is the Ebola outbreak took place, people developed Ebola, and they got out there and they treated people with Ebola. The, the number of deaths was minimized, although it was significant. But what people forget about is the educational reach of CDC around the world to teach people best practices actually stopped the epidemic within a pretty unbelievable period of time, I think about 13 to 16 weeks, if I'm not mistaken. And that's what we want to see with Zika. We, we don't want to just deal with those that have it. We want to deal with those that don't have it and make sure they don't get it. And this funding is absolutely critical for us to see to it that that happens. So Senator Rubio calling this hearing today and focusing on the need to do it is very important. And I hope before we leave tomorrow, we can have an agreement in the Senate to ratify the conference report. And I want to thank all of you in healthcare for what you do to help protect the pregnant moms of America and the citizens of my state against what is a real threat. And the problem is it's a delayed reaction. You find out today that they're pregnant nine months from now, you find out if there's a problem. And nine months from now is too late. We need to prevent every, every terrible pregnancy we can today. And that's why I want to focus on the need to pass this as quickly as possible in the United States Senate. I yield back. That wasn't a question, that was a speech, and I apologize. It was a good one. Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and I'm going to do some speeches and some questions. Uh, you know, uh, this is such a serious problem, but this is also an illustration of why a lot of people hate Congress. They hate Congress. Um, and this is, this is nothing bad on my Senate colleagues. We had some differences of opinion about this Zika um, how to deal with it. And so we've, we voted on three different Zika provisions. There was a Democratic provision to deal with Zika that didn't get enough votes. There was a Republican provision about how to deal with Zika that didn't get enough votes. And then there was a bipartisan provision about how to deal with Zika that did get enough votes. And there were some things in it that probably one side didn't like and some things that the other side didn't like, but we got 68 votes. And it was a billion one, not the number we might have liked, but we got it and it was a clean bill. It was a bill about one thing, fighting Zika. That's what it was about. When it comes back to us, the bill is not about fighting Zika. Frankly, it's about fighting Planned Parenthood and paying for it by taking money out of the Affordable Care Act. So we've got this massive public health challenge, and the American public is worried about it, and we're supposed to fight Zika. And that's what the Senate did. We fought Zika. But the bill comes back to us, and it's, Let's fight Planned Parenthood. That's more important than fighting Zika. Let's take money out of the Affordable Care Act. That's more important than fighting Zika. This is why people hate Congress. This is why people hate Washington. And again, this is no slight on us because I think we actually reached the right compromise, but then the fighting Zika bill becomes the fight Planned Parenthood bill or the fight the Affordable Care Act bill. 
And it is my hope that we will get this thing straightened out. I know everybody here on this dais wants to, and I would second a point that Senator Boxer made in her comments. The right way to deal with this probably down the road is budgetarily to treat infectious diseases like we treat FEMA. We have a funding mechanism for FEMA. We don't know where a hurricane will hit. We don't know where there will be a forest fire, where there will be a flood, but we do know from experience that there will be these items, and so we budget for them, and then we deal with them. We don't do that with respect to infectious diseases, and then that gives people the ability to play games and hold people hostage to try to ride their pet hobby horse instead of doing the thing that we're supposed to do. A couple of questions. I'm curious on the transmission. Um, if people, since uh, you can be infected and asymptomatic, if you come back into the United States and you've been in an area where there is a lot of Zika, um, with respect to sexual transmission, you're telling males, for example, to use condoms. How long are you doing this? Is it for months? Is it for weeks? What's the advice that you're giving people when they return from Zika-infected areas? Our current advice, based on the best available information, which we continue to accrue every day, is that for men whose partners are pregnant, use a condom for the duration of pregnancy. Because we don't know how long uh, that man may remain infectious. Those studies are underway, but they will take six to 12 months to finalize. Are you giving, what advice are you giving, if any, to men whose partners are not pregnant? For couples uh, who are trying to conceive, mm -hmm. our current advice is that if they had no symptoms of Zika infection, they should wait at least two months after leaving the Zika yeah. area. And if they did have symptoms because they might have more virus with that, then it would be six months. Right. And then here's another kind of transmission I wasn't aware of until recently. If you're in a Zika-infected area and you come back to the United States and you've been bitten by a mosquito there and you may not have symptoms, your blood could have Zika infection in it. So if you are bitten by a mosquito in the United States, that could be a blood transmission to mosquitoes here. What, are you, what advice are you giving people about needing to try to avoid mosquito bites in the United States after they return from a country that has a Zika problem? We encourage people to avoid mosquito bites by using DEET, staying indoors in screened or air-conditioned spaces. But the scenario that you outline is exactly the scenario that we think is most likely to spread uh, Zika in parts of the U.S where diseases like dengue have spread in the past, where we've seen clusters in parts of Florida and Texas through mosquito-borne transmission. Although we've now shown that there is sexual transmission, and we know blood transfusion transmission is possible if the blood isn't screened, which it is currently being screened in Puerto Rico and other places, uh, the more likely way that it would spread in this country is the way it's spreading around the world primarily, which is by mosquito bites. And so when somebody re re returns to the United States from an area with a heavy Zika uh, challenge, how, how long are you suggesting that it's important for that person to avoid getting bitten by a mosquito in the United States? Three weeks. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to ask about the vector control piece, and I know the FDA has a portion of that as well, and so I'm assuming that you know, you're all working together. The vaccine is going to take some time to develop. So as I understand vector control, it's a number of different kinds of solutions. It's spraying and figuring out how to do spraying. I'm, I understand that there's various proposals on the table for different, you know, mosquitoes that will, um, that will not reproduce. And so hopefully that could reduce the, the density of mosquitoes in certain areas. Talk about the range of kind of vector control solutions that you're looking at, recognizing that the vaccine is down the road, what can we do right now to reduce the density of mosquitoes that would be carrying this disease? So these are very tough mosquitoes to control. 
They're uh, referred to as the cockroach of mosquitoes. They live indoors and outdoors. They bite in the daytime and the evening. They readily develop resistance to insecticides. They have co-evolved with people in urban areas, so they're an urban pest. Uh, the control measures I would put into two large categories. One is proven safe and effective methods, but they haven't been put together in a way that is effective to stop the mosquito, and we need to figure out how to use our existing tools better. And then new tools, experimental things like sterile uh, male technology where you release sterile males and try to crash the mosquito population. Both of these things require more effort. We need to try the different methods out there and see how rapidly, how persistently we can reduce the mosquitoes. The recommended approach is an integrated vector management approach where you reduce standing water, you reduce larvae, and you use judiciously uh, adulticides or pesticides to kill the adult mosquitoes. Uh, on a longer time frame, more like the vaccine or even longer than that, is the new tools. We need new insecticides. We need new ways to uh, control mosquito populations, but we have to move forward rapidly in both of these areas. And, and could I just, um, my time's up, one, one last question, or maybe two quick ones. Uh, on the, both of these, developing the vaccine takes a tremendous investment, but also the vector control solutions, both to uh, research to determine which are best and then to deploy them broadly, that's also not cheap. That takes a significant investment, correct? That's correct. Um, those are all the questions I have. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I apologize. I'm not going to be able to use my full time here. That, that might not need an apology, but uh, not going to be able to use it all. I have to go preside over on the floor here soon. Uh, Dr. Frieden wanted to talk to you a little bit about the CDC work. Of course, Fort Collins, Colorado is, is home to the Division for Vector-Borne Diseases and has done a tremendous amount of work, this location, on vector-borne illnesses such as chikungunya, uh, dengue, and Zika virus. And I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to visit the work concerning Zika virus there at the laboratory in February of this year, including going in to look at the, the live mosquitoes, the larvae, and, and what was happening and how the whole process worked. I, I learned at this time about a chemical called nucatone that uh, the CDC was working to reclassify as a biochemical pesticide active ingredient. Uh, Nucatones, according to this tour, was a natural ingredient, I think found in citrus, uh, like grapefruit oil. Um, might be in some cedar trees as well, but it has a, a natural uh, grounding. Uh, many may recognize this from their shampoos. I think this product is in many shampoos as well. Uh, the EPA has to evaluate natural tick repellents and pesticides for registration before they may be sold for use by the public to validate safety and efficacy. But as your agency, how have you coordinated with other agencies to expedite the approval of various products, Nucatone or others, uh, to ensure they become available? Thank you very much, Senator, and we're delighted to, that you had the chance to visit our, uh, our unit out in Fort Collins, Colorado. It is the lead unit for Zika and for uh, this work. They do phenomenal work. Their innovation has been terrific. They've come up with the new and, and uh, now uh, increasingly available laboratory tests to diagnose Zika. They've also uh, overseen the work in our dengue branch, which has come up with some new means of capturing mosquitoes and tracking populations. The, the chemical you refer to, Nutricatone, uh, has been under evaluation for uh, years at uh, Fort Collins, and we've recently licensed it to several companies. We're working very closely with the EPA uh, so that it could be brought to market as quickly as possible. It is food grade, 
generally recognized as safe, non-toxic, appears to be as effective uh, as DEET against both mosquitoes and ticks. We're running out of different classes of insecticides. This appears to work in a totally new manner. So we don't know in the end whether it'll work out, but it's certainly very promising. We've had a good reaction from EPA that's willing to work with us and with the companies to get it to market as rapidly as possible. Similarly, with the diagnostic tests, we've had excellent collaboration with the Food and Drug Administration, which has within days approved for emergency use the diagnostic tests that we've developed. Thank you. And, and I am going to have to go to the floor now, but are, are you familiar with the legislation that the Senate uh, is considering from the House on the, the Zika funding? Are you familiar with the details of that legislation at all from the, the, the House passed version of Zika funding? Uh, it, yes. Okay. And, and I, I, because I hear people talk about uh, the funding of Planned Parenthood, and I just want to make, I have a question for you on this funding. Does the House bill take money away from Planned Parenthood? I'm not uh, familiar with the exact funding allocations in that bill. I believe the answer is no, and I would just uh, would love to if you could get back to me on that. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Kane, you had to follow up? Just one brief follow-up. Advice for all of us. Um, t tell me if this is right. I understand that the mosquito that carries, carries Zika breeds in containers, so not necessarily in standing water on the ground necessarily, but more swimming pools or, you know, like the depression in the cover of my grill that ends up with rainwater on it or a dog bowl in the backyard, a wheelbarrow, I've got one of those, I've got a canoe that gets water in it. So one of the things that we can all do in our neighborhoods if we want to try to reduce the population density of this mosquito is to make sure that there's not water standing in containers in our yards and neighborhoods. Am I, am I generally right about that? Yes, you are, Senator, and one of the challenges of controlling this mosquito is that it can breed in tiny amounts of water, the amount in a bottle cap. So to eliminate standing mm -hmm. water really means eliminating all standing water, and that's why it's been difficult to do it to an extent that you will actually see a large enough impact on the number of mosquitoes mm -hmm. to make a difference. But different communities are different. In one community, uh, bird baths were found to be one yeah. of the important sources of mosquito breeding water. So w that's one reason why it's so important that communities in this country and around the world have the tools to track uh, the numbers of mosquitoes and see if their mosquito control activities are succeeding. Thank you. And the bigger question is, why do you have a canoe? But we'll uh, get into that in <laughs> Senator Markey. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, <clears throat> can I go to the pesticide issue and uh, what breakthroughs we might be making in pesticides? Are there new pesticides that might be effective that can supersede the need to use DEET or other pesticides? Can any of you talk about that? Thank you so much, Senator. First off, let's divide the different types of repellents and pesticides. So DEET is a product that we would put on our skin. There are several FDA-approved products that are effective. I mentioned that there are some more products down the road which may be available in the future that may be uh, more pleasant to use and just as safe and effective. There are also products that can be used in an area, what are referred to as spatial repellents, so things that you might uh, burn uh, in your household or spray in your household. Uh, there, we're trying to get better products available. And then third are materials that we would use to control mosquitoes in a community, so insecticides or pesticides. 
One of the really interesting things that's happened in recent years is the refinement of ultra-low volume spraying, or ULV spraying. It uses tiny amounts of the pesticide and a very different particle size to penetrate more deeply, waft down more slowly, kill mosquitoes more effectively at a lower dose. And what we're seeing with those ultra-low volume applications is the ability to control mosquitoes with less pesticide but more efficacy. So one of the areas, again, is using our current tools more effectively or tweaking them, if you will. The second is developing new tools like new classes of insecticide. It has been decades since we've had a new class of insecticide available. That's why funding to develop new types of insecticides ensure that they're safe and effective is so important. That's why we're so excited about the, the chemical that Senator Gardner mentioned, nutcatone, because it is non-toxic food grade. Um, and uh, there are also new experimental methods, uh, sterile mail or gene drive, that are truly experimental where we might be able to crash mosquito populations. We'll have to see whether those are scalable, effective, and safe, but we won't know unless we study it. Now, this ultra-low volume, uh, insecticide, have you used it in Puerto Rico? Uh, w that is currently under consideration. And what would be the question that you would have to answer before its use? The spread of Zika is so rapid and so extensive in Puerto Rico that uh, it is likely that to have an impact, it would have to be applied by fixed-wing aircraft or aerial spraying. Mm -hmm. uh, that creates a lot of concern in Puerto Rico, and there's been very vocal concern about that raised. We think there is a gap of information, and we're working hard to get valid information out and to confront some myths uh, about this. So the contention of the CDC or the U.S. government is that this ultra-low volume um, spraying can't be done without any danger to human beings, but yet play a good role in helping to control the Zika fly we believe it can rapidly reduce mosquitoes, and both CDC and the EPA have indicated that it can be done without risk to people, animals, or the environment. Uh -huh. And so down in Puerto Rico right now, you're saying that's being resisted because of, of kind of a, a, a just a generalized fear uh, that something can be done that harms other children, I suppose, uh, there are <clears throat> with, with those kinds of uh, insecticides being put into the air. There are a number of concerns, uh, a number of historical factors, current events that make it a, a big challenge to do this there. But from a technical standpoint, we think this is the most likely way you could reduce the number of mosquitoes substantially and quickly. Now, if an outbreak occurred within the continental United States, would this be one of the methods that you would recommend be used, let's say, in the first community that had an outbreak in order to uh, try to isolate it quickly. It very much depends on the conditions in the community, but this is something that is done routinely in the U.S. In fact, the state of Florida each year uses ULV aerial application in about six million acres. It's done routinely in Tampa, Miami, and other places. It's unfamiliar in Puerto Rico, and therefore there are some concerns there. Yep. And can I take a, just a little bit of time just to talk about um, the cost of now treating children who have a contracted uh, microcephaly or other diseases related to this epidemic. Uh, the United States is now going to have 
long-term responsibility for the care of these children. Uh, and it's going to add millions, if not billions of dollars over time to the budget of our country. And so this is, to me, a classic example of where working smarter, putting the preventative tools in place up front, will then protect us against huge balloon costs that could last 30, 40, 50, 60 years uh, with something that we could have prevented from exploding into huge numbers. So even the children in Puerto Rico are Americans, and we have responsibility for them for years to come. So not spending the money there now uh, is something that ultimately we're going to pay a price that's hundreds of times higher in the long term in terms of providing medical care for them. Could you talk a little bit about that? Our birth defect center has documented that the care of one child with a severe birth defect can be up to $10 million or more in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. So there is a personal tragedy, a family tragedy, but also an economic cost for not preventing uh, preventable cases of birth defects. It's very rare to have birth defects that can be prevented in the dozens, hundreds, or thousands. Yeah. Our staff from our birth defects center tell us that in the 30 years they've been working on birth defects, this is the most urgent situation they have faced. Yeah, so, you know, the old saying is a stitch in time saves nine, but here a billion dollars now could save $10 billion later because of all the children who would not ultimately be born with this disease, that we would have a moral responsibility, a legal responsibility to take care of. So uh, <clears throat> I think that's something that we should all think about in terms of Puerto Rico or any of the other places that could ultimately uh, be affected by this disease, even if it's not something that happened inside the continental United States. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I, um, <clears throat> as you know, I've supported the President's request at $1.9 I thought we should err on the side of caution and do it as quickly as possible. I supported the 1.1, even if it was less, but it was something. I've been trying to urgently get us to do something to move funds so we can begin to address it. I, I was wondering if you could discuss, and perhaps this applies beyond simply the, the CDC, but what happens if tomorrow Congress adjourns for six weeks for the conventions in the summer and no funding is forthcoming? Where are the shortfalls? What will not be happening as a result of the inability to do something about this? Well, I'll start, and, and my colleagues may want to say more. We will do the best we can, but this is no way to fight epidemics. It means we can't begin the long-term projects to figure out how to protect women more effectively, to come up with better ways to diagnose Zika, to accelerate mosquito control strategies because we haven't been able to invest in those things. We also won't be able to repay the money we borrowed. We borrowed emergency money from states throughout the U.S. so that we could allocate it for Zika, not because that money wasn't important or needed, because that was the only money we had access to that we could use rapidly. And we have a gap in resources to fight Ebola in West Africa because we had dollars that we had planned to use starting October 1 to continue to keep Ebola in control in West Africa. We're continuing to see flares of the embers that are burning from the epidemic that's over there, and all of those resources are at risk. That's why passage of a supplemental is so important, and it shows us again why having some sort of an infectious disease rapid response fund is critically important so that we don't have to go through this the next time there's a global public health emergency because without a doubt there will be a next time. Yes, if I could, thank you very much, Senator. If I could just add to that and 
would certainly echo Dr. Frieden that we will do the best we can, but with the resources we have, we'll be able to support the countries that I, I noted for a period of time, for several months during the next year, but we certainly won't be able to do very much to expand to other countries or really deepen the, the impact of our, our programs. It's enough to, to pay for activities running through several months, but we can't expand, and we do believe we need to expand. It can't just be the five countries. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for that question. It has impact for the State Department activities as well. Uh, we hope to use the money from the supplemental for targeted support for U.S. citizens, such as repatriation loans for those that may be U.S. citizens that may be affected living overseas. As a former ambassador, I can tell you one thing that gives me great concern is that if current trends of our medical evacuation of pregnant women uh, as employees or their spouses in our posts overseas continue as at the current rates, we don't have sufficient money for those medical evacuations throughout the year, That's, that was part of the targeted money for that. And I think we have to take care of our own people, that's extremely important, and we're asking them to sacrifice by going overseas. We also hope to use some of that money for improving on communications plans in many countries and out to U.S. citizens. As we've heard in so much of the testimony today, getting the information out is so critical, and whether that's to U.S. citizens or help our embassies being able to help other governments get the information out can do so much in the area of prevention. And also, last but certainly not least, it enables us to make contributions to international organizations such as the World Health Organization. Countries look to the U.S. for leadership. If we're able to make those contributions, we know that other, it will stimulate other countries to do the same. So just to summarize, if this money doesn't happen tomorrow, then we're, we face a situation where all the innovative work going into getting ahead of this will not be able to move forward in addition to the risk of an Ebola or other outbreak happening somewhere in the world and the depletion of the emergency funds at the individual state level. We face the inability to fund the work we're doing with partner nations in the region who, if they're dramatically impacted, ultimately will impact us because some of those cases will migrate here in search of med medical care and so forth and on a humanitarian basis. And as I've heard from, from you, Secretary Garber, you're saying we may not even be happy, we'll run out of funds to actually bring our people back home from being, who are deployed abroad serving in our embassies and, and consulates around the world. Let, Dr. Frieden, you talked about the screening of blood in Puerto Rico. Are we screening blood now in the main, mainland as well? The Food and Drug Administration oversees blood screening in the U.S. There are parts of the U.S. that have uh, undertaken screening. Other parts are waiting until they have local transmission or possible local transmission. Uh, already parts of Texas and elsewhere where they've had uh, dengue before have screened. The screening tests are highly accurate in blood, so we want to ensure that we keep the risk as close to zero as possible. Well, I ask from the case of Florida, obviously Central Florida, all of Florida in general, but Central Florida in particular has a very strong link with, with Puerto Rico, with the island. Uh, do you know if Central Florida is screening its blood supply? I would have to get back to you. Also, uh, already the blood banks had, um, as of uh, several months ago, begun a policy that people who have traveled to a place with Zika should defer donation. So by deferring donors, that's an added layer of safety. So people who would come from Puerto Rico, for example, would be told not to donate blood and would be asked specifically about that during that time. Here's the last question, Dr. Frieden. I'm, if someone contracts Zika, in most of these cases, they're not even symptomatic. In essence, there are people who are carrying it today in the United States that don't even know it, either because you're not symptomatic or if you are symptomatic, you're largely going to present at an urgent care or emergency room or a doctor's office with what looks like the flu in some cases, right? So let's just use as an example, if I were to contract Zika, the way I would manifest if I had any symptoms at all would very much mimic 
that of a viral infection or a flu, correct? Correct. And the likelihood, even if I've traveled abroad, um, unless I reported it or if I even showed up, because oftentimes I know these symptoms now at 45 years of age, I've had the flu a number of times. I get the shot every year now though, so. But I've had the flu a number of times and other you know, colds and what have you. And so you basically say, I know what I have, I'll just go through it. The chances are that I may not even go to a doctor, much less be tested. Because the, the, as I understand it, the, the, the screening for Zika is still not widely commercially available. It would require a referral to a Department of Health to look at it specifically. It's not the kind of thing you see in a panel written up in a doctor's office, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And so the reality is that it is very much, it is quite possible, and perhaps I would dare say even probable, that, that there is already a mosquito infection that has occurred in the United States, and we just don't know it because that person has not yet been tested. What we, don't, what we know is no one who has not traveled abroad and has not contracted it sexually has not tested positive yet. But we don't know if somewhere in the United States right now there is someone who contracted it from a mosquito bite in the United States, but because they're not pregnant or because they're not symptomatic or because they weren't tested because they just thought they had the flu, we don't know that it was transmitted by a mosquito. So uh, yes, it's certainly possible. Let me also say on your blood donation question, I wanna validate the answers I gave you before and we'll get you more information on that. But on testing, um, because as you point out, 80% of people have no symptoms, those with symptoms have symptoms that are relatively mild, there is the possibility that transmission could occur without our recognizing it. That's why we're encouraging health departments throughout the US to follow up on all known cases of Zika and to encourage doctors in those areas where Zika might spread through the local mosquito to be alert to the possibility and also to test contact or family members who have illness to see if they have Zika. We've also been working hard to transfer our test methods to the private sector. They're not yet there yet, though we've made progress toward that. So I think the scenario you outlined is certainly plausible. We anticipate that it will be very difficult to identify the first locally transmitted case of Zika. This is why we need better diagnostics. This is why we need better mosquito control programs throughout the U.S. Obviously, you can't speculate entirely about the future, but do you have personally, based on your expertise, do you have any doubt that we will see a mosquito transmission at the U.S. in the mainland United States at some point? I think it's likely we will see mosquito-borne transmission. We don't have a crystal ball, but the best predictor is what has happened with dengue. And with dengue, we've seen clusters and isolated cases in various parts of the country, particularly Florida and also Texas. So if, uh, since Zika is spread by the same uh, mosquito, we anticipate that the same type of pattern may occur in addition to the unexpected sexual and potentially other means of transmission. And my last question um, with regards to this is, does it make any sense at any point in time from a medical perspective to add a test for Zika to the normal screening or the panel that would be administered to someone um, the way you would put some other infections or other diseases or other viral in infections on a, on a normal uh, panel for a blood test? At this point, probably not uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, if uh, in the future we were to have a test for prior infection with Zika, that might give us some uh, useful information, but we know that if you have a test applied where the positivity rate is low, you'll have a large number of false positives, even if the test is a good test. There, there, I'm sorry, to, there is no, the, the only way to confirm a Zika diagnosis is through a blood test? Blood and urine. So it it's also appears in, in 
and yes, other fluids. There, uh, the, there are two, broadly speaking, there are two types of tests for Zika. One that looks for the actual virus, the RNA of the virus, and that can be found in blood or urine for about the first two weeks currently after infection, or a test that checks for the body's reaction to the virus, the antibodies, and that becomes positive within the first week or two and generally stays positive only for about 8 to 12 weeks. Yeah, and the reason why I ask only is because I was just wondering if at some point, as part of the research that's being done, it's possible to create some sort of quick, painless, I suppose, ideally, point of entry test that could be applied to travelers coming into the United States, but obviously if it's through blood, you're asking them to submit to having blood drawn, which is and, and having someone undergo a urinalysis at an airport is not the best way to welcome them to the United States, but. We have uh, about 40 million trips to and from the U.S. to Zika endemic areas and perhaps 200 million overland or, or other trips. That, in, theoretically speaking, if a few years from now we have a good test for prior infection and a vaccine, you could imagine a situation in which travelers leaving the U.S. would want to find out if they had immunity and if not, uh, and potentially would become pregnant, get a vaccine. That's very theoretical. We've run long, so my last question, I promise this is the last question. Um, if someone has traveled abroad to one of these countries uh, where Zika is present, and they've either had relations or have been bitten by a mosquito or think they might have been, what, how, can they, how would they get tested? Could their, local, could their doctor order a test? Any doctor in the U.S. can contact their local health department. We've already distributed uh, our test and and trained and supervised labs around the country so that most state health labs already can do this test and those that don't can send it to CDC labs to have done. So again, in the first two weeks, there's one type of test. From two to 12 weeks, another type of test. If people, particularly pregnant women, are concerned that they may have an infection, they should be tested. And people with symptoms of Zika who've traveled should also be tested. And those, te those tests are available, uh, as you indicate, if we could get them into the private sector, they would be more widely available, and we're doing that as rapidly as possible. We actually got Food and Drug Administration approval to do that within the past week. Uh, we've already shipped the materials to private labs, and they're now undergoing the validation so that they can be comfortable in doing this and providing the results. Well, I want to thank all three of you for your time and for being here and from the attendance uh, today. Obviously, uh, on the subcommittee, there's clearly an interest both among our members and the general public uh, before we conclude, I'd like to include a study conducted by the University of Florida, uh, the finest learning institution in the Southeast United States, from Dr. Glenn Morris as part of the hearing record. That was a point of personal privilege. And uh, the record for this hearing was going to remain open until the close of business on Friday. And with that, the meeting's adjourned.